0: Greetings in Our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to the audio ministry of Christ Church of Livingston County. The following are three excerpts from a covenant renewal worship service led by Pastor Dirk DeWinkle, teaching elder at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording.
1: A call to confession this morning comes from Proverbs chapter 25 verse 26. A righteous man who falters before the wicked is like a murky spring and a polluted well. The proverb here is fairly straightforward, and the evidence for it is everywhere. There's a famous quote by Edmund Burke, and he said, All that is necessary for the triumph of evil is that good men do nothing. All that is necessary for the triumph of evil is that good men do nothing. When God cleanses his people, he makes us holy. He forgives our sin and he deputizes us for his service. The righteous should be steadfast like a tree planted by the river's edge full of fruit and life. Because the righteous is a witness for God's truth. Which is absolute. God's truth is hard. It's unyielding. God's truth doesn't bend, it doesn't lie. However, because we live in a fallen world, the righteous is called to be countercultural. That's why Jesus called his disciples salt and light. Righteousness is not and cannot be passive in the face of evil. It is sinful for us to give way to wickedness. When we see oppression, it is wrong to turn the other way. If we are aware of wickedness, it is our duty to call it out. If we stand by and watch while the wicked do their thing, we are culpable because it's functionally buying into the lies of relativism. The world says, what's true for me is true for me, and what's true for you is true for you. And if we allow them to say that and not be challenged on it, we are culpable. And there are boatloads of application for this. Not objecting to a movie or a popular song because our friends are into it. Laughing at a dirty joke. Listening to gossip enabling complainers and grumblers and not calling them out for it, enabling abusers. These are all things that we can participate in or have participated in out of the fear of confrontation or the fear of being disliked or excluded, and ultimately it's out of the fear of man. A righteous man or woman who is passive or who capitulates to wickedness is sullying his or her witness. Just like water from a good spring or a good well should be clean and refreshing, the righteous should be an agent for good, a breath of fresh air to a rotten atmosphere or chlorine in the pool. The righteous man's connection to God breathes divine life into him. And the Spirit of God is effective. Jesus' kingdom spreads. But the method for this to happen is always the cross. When Moses encountered a bitter spring in the wilderness, God had him cut down a tree and toss it in to make it sweet. At the cross, we behold both the magnitude of our wickedness and the magnitude of the one who judges. There we see who we ought to fear. And the threats of the wicked take a back seat to the awe of God and the majesty of His grace. This reminds us of our need to confess our sins. So if you're willing and able, please kneel. Continuing our study on the book of James. In fact, or perhaps I should say we're beginning our study in the book of James because our message a couple weeks ago was mostly introduction to this. And if you'll remember, I argued for James the Apostle, the, the older brother of John, the sons of Zebedee. Uh, together they were called Boanerges or the sons of Thunder. I argue for that James being the author and that he wrote the book of James very early on in the life of the church, probably within the first year after the resurrection, 30 AD. He was writing to the fledgling church that was scattered and dispersed uh, because of the persecution that followed the stoning of Stephen in Jerusalem. Now, the book of James is extremely practical. It's very practical. James is concerned with keeping the believers focused, on point, despite the distractions and the, the, the things that would pull them away from being faithful in their service of Christ that were coming from the suffering and the persecution that they were, they were experiencing. So James wrote about how to handle trials, and our text today is all about that, so stay tuned. He also wrote about true true religion versus false religion, and about the rich, and the poor, and the tongue, and the sick, and how to pray very practical and all of these topics remain very important to the present day so it's really exciting that we're going to be studying the book of james there's there's tons of of just good things that are meaty and are going to be healthy and and valuable for us to get into the word and study here Uh, now today we're going to be working with one of the most famous passages in the book of james and really in all of scripture my brethren count it all joy when you fall into various trials. What a statement. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. So our text is James 1, verses 2 to 4. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So it's going to be valuable for us to spend a little bit of time talking about the verse, the, wor- the verses, the words that James chooses, and what these verses, what these words actually mean. Because when you start getting into passages that are famous. Uh, It's commonplace for them to be taken out of context. It's commonplace for us to get it wrong. And so people will quote these verses all the time. And somebody starts complaining about a difficulty they are having and instantly out pops James 1 verse 2. Count it all joy when you encounter various trials. But I want to give that context, I want want you to see it in in the message of James. What is his purpose in saying this? So in order to do that, we're going to have to dig into the sentence a little bit. So let's dig into it and give some definitions and explanation. Consider it all joy when you fall into various trials. Count it or consider it. This is how we are to approach difficulties. He's telling us this is what your modus operandi should be. This is your approach. This is this is this is how you're supposed to think about it. Consider it. Count it this way. Count it all joy. Now, this is something that's easy for us to, 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 to make it mean, not what it actually means. It's easy for us to think about joy as just being happy. Uh, The problem with that is it has a a sense of glibness to it, an insincere happiness. It's just you're supposed to be happy about whatever hardship you're facing. And that's not what James is saying, not that way. He's talking about genuine appreciation for the trial. But that doesn't mean feeling good about it. It means seeing God's hand in it. And we're going to get into that in a second. And he says, kind of all joy when you encounter or when you fall into various trials. Various means all kinds of trials. This is not limited to being persecuted by wicked men. It's not limited to uh, specific kinds of problems. He says many kinds or any kind of problem that you encounter. Any kind of difficulty that you encounter that you're supposed to approach all of life with this appreciation. It's just like Paul saying, in everything give thanks. In everything give thanks. In various trials, in all manner of, in all kinds of trials. Give uh, consider it with joy. Consider it, think of, think about what you're going through in in the knowledge of this is what God is doing. Which is exactly where James goes in the next verse. Knowing, knowledge, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. So here we have doctrine being the basis upon which we can do what James is telling us to do. He gives us a command. Consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. Knowing, on the basis of this knowledge, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. So it's on the basis of doctrine. It's that, and and what is, what he he equates trials to is this, the testing of our faith. He says, this is what trials are. It's a test. This is what God is giving to you. He's saying, saying, I'm going to try you out. I'm going to see if you really believe. He's testing our faith. That's what a trial is. It's, It's a challenge to us to see if our faith is real. And then what that trial does is it produces a fruit of patience. Enduring trials gives patience to us. Okay, so we're supposed to count it all joy when we encounter various trials because we know that trials... Testing of our faith produces patience. So what's the value of that patience? And that's the next verse. Verse 4. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Patience works. And he's telling us to be patient in patience. He says, wait for it. Wait for it. Patience is working. You have to be patient in order for patience to work. But, but it, it does. That's what patience does is it works. It effects. It, 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 it manufactures maturity. That you may be perfect and complete. That's maturity. Uh, perfect means to be mature or complete. And, uh, and complete means to, to be... Perfect means to be mature. Complete means to be whole to have all of the parts to to not have and then he, and then he repeats it in the negative. What it means to be mature and to be whole is to not have anything lacking. So patience is effecting this complete maturity in us. That is what we are celebrating when we encounter trials. We know that we are supposed to Embrace difficulty, not on the basis of the difficulty, not because we like being hurt, not because we like challenges on the, just for their own sake. We appreciate God's testing us for the sake of the fruit that it produces in us. Patience, which leads to completeness. So basically what James is saying is can it all joy when you encounter trials. Because it means you're alive. Consider trials as proof that you are alive. Life is trial. Life is suffering. We embrace life, which means that we must embrace what life brings, which is suffering and trials. Consider trials proof that you are alive and that God is taking this opportunity to work on you. And to display his work in you. This is truly revolutionary in how you view the world. The the world does not understand this. The world doesn't get this. How a Christian can be crushed and praise God. How a man can take a trial and give thanks. And not curse God. Like Job. The the texts that we read this morning were just hand in glove with this message of considering it joy as you encounter these trials because there's something beyond. Because there's something beyond. Now, it might seem strange as you read in James or especially on the surface of it. James says, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, 12 tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. And then he doesn't beat around the bush at all. He is a son of thunder. He gets right to the heart of the matter. Why does James start the letter this way? Why do you say, greetings? You better be happy about the suffering that you're going through. Who who starts a letter that way? And why? James starts his letter that that way. He says, greetings. Take that. Count it all joy when you suffer. What's he talking about? Why does he start there? It's because James gets it. James sees the big picture. He's concerned with... Life and death matters. He's concerned with the crown of life. James 1, verse 12, we read Blessed is the man who endures temptation, which is the same word as trials. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, when you've been tested and passed, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. He says, You will receive glory in meeting this challenge head-on. James is writing with the eyes of faith. And what he sees through that faith is that he's addressing nobility. He's talking to kings and rulers in the kingdom of heaven. He knows they're poor in this world's eyes. He knows they have nothing. But just like Paul said in our text this morning from Corinthians, Being poor, he made many wealthy. That's who he's talking to. You are ambassadors from the living God. You are his kings. You are his priests. You are his hands and feet on the earth. He writes to kings and rulers in the kingdom of heaven because he knows that that's what Jesus inaugurated when he came down to earth. What happens when Jesus comes and starts his ministry? He's baptized and he goes out preaching the good news of the kingdom of heaven. That is already here. Remember that James is writing this not very long after he and the other apostles declared Jesus' lordship to the Jews when they were arrested. In Acts 5, starting at verse 29. And, and, uh, and we see there that in answer to the high priest's accusation against Peter and the other apostles... He accused them that they were disobeying the command of not to teach in Jesus' name. He said, "Did not did we not clearly tell you not to preach in this in this name? But, but you, you're going out and spreading this doctrine all over Jerusalem." This is what Peter and the other apostles said. And Peter and the other apostles answered and said, "Who are you? Who are you? we? Ought to obey God rather than man?" The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him, God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Who are you, high priest? That's who they're talking to. The high priest of all the Jews. Who are you? God told us to do this. His spirit is in us. We must preach the gospel in the name of Jesus Christ. And in verses 40 to 41, after Gamaliel calmed down the Sanhedrin, we read this, and they agreed with him, Gamaliel, And when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Notice how the apostles followed in Christ's footsteps and modeled what James is asking the scattered disciples to do. They showed us how. They did it. Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. James is talking to kings and rulers. James' point here is wisdom. It's the concern of kings. In fact, that is exactly where he goes in the next verse. Verse 5. If any of you lacks Wisdom, let him ask, of God who gives to all freely. That's exactly where he goes because he knows that's what they need is wisdom in order to do this counting it all joy. James is concerned that the young church exercise wisdom in their scattering and in the propagation of the gospel. He says... Because Jesus is Lord, you must follow him and not be afraid of men. You cannot faithfully bear witness if you're overcome by trials. If you bend with the wind. It's like our proverb from the confession of sin this morning. You cannot claim Christ and then capitulate to wickedness. Like our Proverbs, James, James himself in chapter 3 uses the metaphor of bitter and sweet water coming out of the same fountain. It ought not to be so, he says. So our confession and our life have to match. Because Jesus is Lord, we must live as if he is Lord. Because he's in control of this situation and he administers all situations and all circumstances because Jesus is Lord we must take care of widows and orphans and we must not show partiality to the rich because that kind of faithfulness easily gets set aside when we encounter trials and persecution not my job. I'm dealing with a big problem here. When I was a kid, we um, went on mission trips several times. Uh, and and a couple years in a row, we went to this church in Mexico, in Ensenada. And it was a poor church. It was in the middle of cardboard town, and people living in huts. And we went there. The first year we went there, we... Uh, built a roof on top of a section of the building that they were adding onto to it so they could fit more people into the building because they were going out into the courtyard so they'd get rained on if it, if it rained. And so the guys did that while the girls ended up teaching VBS for a week. And then the next year we went down, we poured a concrete slab in, and we picked up a house and set it on the slab so that they could use that as the pastor's quarters and as a seminary. That church, as poor as it was, people living in huts, planted 12 other churches. 12 other churches. They had their priorities straight. It's easy for us to get caught up in stuff or in perceived persecution and take our eyes off the prize. to to stop doing the the little things that being a Christian is all about. Establishing justice and righteousness, standing up for the poor and the oppressed, declaring the gospel to the world. It's easy to set aside the care of widows and orphans because it's not a very glamorous job. But it's our job because we serve the Lord who tells us that's our job. In all this, James understands that you and I have to get the big picture in order to be faithful in the mundane. We have to see singing at the nursing home as the work of the king of heaven. We have to see discerning between the little squabbles that our kids have as kingdom work. We have to get that big picture in order to be faithful that way. So he starts here at the beginning of his letter. And it says, count it all joy when you encounter suffering. <laughs> so I've already kind of got into a little bit what this means for us. But I want to spend a little more time on that. It would be very well, it would be well of us to pound this into our heads. It's a big picture thing. We need to get this. And so I want to give you a couple examples that illustrate what this is talking about. Life is like an athletic competition. Paul tells us, "Run the race with endurance." See, you see how the patience and the the endurance and the race there. Life is a race. It's like a basketball game. Run the race. Trials are the game. Trials are where God proves and tests our skill. Doctrine, the things that James tells us that that we know, that's the practice. That's all the work that goes into knowing what we know about the God that we love and serve. All the work that we put into studying theology and studying history. But... In the end, that has to hit the ground. You can practice all day long, every day of the year, and never get in the game. What good is that? Where's the glory in that? Where's the joy in that? An athlete works very hard so that he's prepared to get into the game. But if he sits on the sideline without any testing of his skill, he will never see any glory or know his true value or worth. He rejoices to be taken off the bench. A kid that's called off the bench who's just, just, yeah, yes, and he's in the game. He rejoices to be put in the game. He rejoices in the trial. It's dangerous. I mean, it's in the game where you miss your shot and lose the game. It's in the game where you can get really seriously hurt. All kinds of things happen there. But he rejoices to get off that bench. Life is trials. Drawing breath is equivalent to being tested. We're all in the game. None of us gets a sideline. We are all on call. We are all in the game. From the least of us to the greatest of us. We are participating in life. And we're all becoming. We're all on a journey together. In the grand scheme of things, we're very close to each other in in this becoming. Even from the littlest baby here to the oldest one here. What is it? 70, 80 years less in our congregation? Upper 60s? In the big scheme of things, we are neck and neck in eternity. Neck and neck. Winning it by a nose hair. We're all... Becoming. Another example of this would be like in in C.S. Lewis's um, Voyage of the Dawn Treader when when uh, the, the Dawn Treader arrives at the island of the Duffelputs. You encounter the Duffelputs and they're quite something. Pretty full of themselves, full of pride and arrogance, pretty stupid, very funny. Um, and then you encounter Kariake and he is this star. Uh, whose punishment is that he has to take care of the Dufflepuds? They're all in the game. They're all under Aslan's leadership. They're all serving the true King, from the greatest to the least. They're called to faithfulness where they're at. The Dufflepuds cannot fathom the trials that Karai endures. And Karaikin has a hard time wrapping his head around how simple the duffel are. Maybe not Karaikin as much as Peter and Edmund, or no, as, as much as Susan and, and, and Edmund. But that's the way it is. We are who we are and where we are when God puts us there. And we're called to faithfulness wherever that is. We're all in the game. We're all moving towards an end. Teleos is the Greek for end. It's also the word for completeness that James uses here. Time marches on. More living means drawing closer to the end. In the end, we all die. In every moment, We live, we're closer to that trial. Think about that. For Christians, for those who really believe the gospel, who really have faith in Jesus Christ and the promises of the gospel, this means every trial is an opportunity to become more mature, to become more like Jesus, to become more holy and sanctified. It's an opportunity for growth. It's an anticipation for greater nearness to God, nearness to Jesus. Paul says, that would be better. To be dead would be better for me. He's not afraid of it. He sees it because he gets the big picture. But for non-Christians, this is downright scary. For those who don't have peace with God and faith in Christ, it means greater and greater fear and condemnation because God and Jesus are getting nearer and nearer. And he's holy. This is the antithesis between faith and unbelief. This is the war that you and I we are all engaged in. And this is why we must be faithful in declaring the gospel. It's life and death. It's why we shouldn't beat around the bush. It's why we shouldn't comfort those who shouldn't be comforted, who need to be called out for their sin. It's why we shouldn't capitulate to wickedness. And we do this by... We count it all joy by doing it this way. We must learn to see the difference that Jesus Christ makes. We must learn to see the value of maturity in faith. Unless you truly see what James is saying in that second sentence of of our text. The value of maturity in faith. Lacking in nothing, complete and whole. Unless you see the real, genuine worth to that, you could never make sense of counting all joy when you encounter various trials. But that value is real. We We need to grasp onto it. We must learn to see the difference that Jesus makes. And here I have a few more examples. Was Frodo better off before the Ring or after Mordor? Sam and Merry and Pippin, when they come back to the Shire, are they afraid of the wicked men who set themselves up as rulers? No, they cleanse the Shire. The, 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 the mere comparison of them to the true leader of God just made, made their opposition laughable. Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy, and Eustace, were they better before Narnia or after? Think of a godly marriage. Are you more sanctified going into it, or 10 years in, 20 years in, 30 years in, or more? God is sanctifying you through the trials that you endure. Saint Peter, before the crucifixion, denied Jesus to a servant girl in the house of the in the servant girl in the house of the high priest. He denied Jesus to a servant girl. After the cross. He boldly declares the gospel to the high priest and the Sanhedrin in session to their faces. He's better off after the cross. He's better off after the trial. He rejoices that he's kind of worthy to suffer on the sake of, for the sake of Jesus Christ. Because trials sanctify us. God's putting the gold and the silver into the fire. Trials keep us from getting too comfortable with the status quo. They drive us to God. They cause us to yearn for His perfection and holiness and justice and peace. And they teach us the path of patience and completeness. Trials do that. You can't get there any other way. Life is the big game But God is in control, and He manufactures our circumstances for our perfection and for our good. We can know that whatever is happening, as Paul says in Romans 8, it all works together for our good. Embrace your trials. They're from God. He's not tempting you. He's testing you. He's proving you. He's perfecting you. Now there's a toggle switch here. Trials are good or they are bad. Depending on this, do you have faith? Because outside of faith, your trials will crush you and destroy you. But if you believe on Jesus Christ, if you're faithful, those trials are for your good. If we're unfaithful, we're damned or we are building with straw. If we're not damned, but we're still unfaithful. In those trials, we're building with straw. The point is, don't lose sight of the goal. Don't lose sight of what you're aiming for. Don't lose sight of Jesus Christ. And then you, with James and Peter and all believers, embrace the grace and mercy of God as evidenced in life, by which I mean as evidenced in trials. Trials are what is how God gives us grace and mercy. We can see His work in our life. We can see our sanctification. And we can rejoice in that. Even death is a gift that finally removes all taint and stain of sin and ends the struggle for us against our own mortality. We call it sleep now. Because it doesn't have fear anymore. In death, we can experience the fullness of Christ's eternal life without any more challenges against it. But in the meantime, we count it all joy. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Supper, we are reminded of the goodness of God in the gospel. God became a man and bore our sins and paid our debt and freely applies to his Holy Spirit to us so that we might have life and have it abundantly. This means that he gives us a different worldview. He opens our eyes to our sin and he chastens our disobedience not to destroy us but to renew us and to give us victory over it. In our humble confession and repentance, we receive His forgiveness, and we are set right before Him, so we now yearn for His fulfilling presence and the accomplishment of His will. This means we embrace life. We embrace Him, and we embrace one another. With all the trials, with all the foibles and spots and wrinkles, We learn justice and peace and love through Jesus Christ and the work of His Spirit. God is working in the midst of it all. And because we have His promise, because we have Jesus Christ, we proclaim in faith, Amen, so be it. Glory be to God. This meal is for all baptized believers under the authority of Christ and His body, the church. When we eat and drink the wine and bread we acknowledge our sin and our desperate need of the sovereign mercy of god and that jesus christ is alone sufficient for our salvation christ's body broken for us let us pray
0: thank you for listening to these excerpts from the worship service of christ church of livingston county if you would like further information about anything in these messages the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact Pastor Dirk DeWinkle through our website, christkirkmi.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I dot com. Again, thank you and blessings.